Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Futures and Innovation Podcast. My name is Nyamburambogwa. I'm a communications consultant based in Nairobi and passionate about knowledge sharing and information accessibility. The Center's annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organizations and also shows in turn how these organizations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of the 2022 edition on civil society innovation and digital power shift, highlighting promising innovations by civil society organizations in delivering solutions for digital inclusion. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. I am joined today by the product manager of Amnesty Decoders, Sophie Dyer. Sophie also works as a tactical research advisor for the Crisis Evidence Lab. Welcome, Sophie. Thanks for having me. So within Amnesty, I work for the Crisis Evidence Lab, and we support Amnesty researchers across the movement, often using remote research methods, such as open source research, perhaps satellite imagery analysis or 3D modeling. And within the Evidence Lab, I'm the product manager for a really special program, Amnesty Decoders, and I also help out on other work that uses open source, visual, and particularly participatory research methods. What is the big idea behind Amnesty Decoders, and how did this idea originate? Amnesty Decoders uses data-driven research and participatory methods borrowed from citizen science. And at the core of the project is the idea of microtasking. So when a researcher has a large scale problem, we use microtasking when possible to break it down into many thousands of tiny tasks that then can be completed online by digital volunteers. Decoders often addresses these large problems that either require data to be structured in order for the research to take place, or in fact, where there is missing data. And we often do this through text and imagery analysis. And actually, I wanted to mention, because I think there's like a really helpful way to understand the kind of the problem that Decoders seeks to address. And that's through the concept of missing data sets, which I love. And I came to actually through, I should say, the work of Catherine D'Anazio and Laura Klein, who are the authors of Data Feminism. And, and missing data sets is a concept by the Nigerian-American artist and researcher Mimi Anuha. And Mimi says that missing data sets are the blank spots that exist in spaces that are otherwise data saturated. So there's a few reasons, you know, why missing data sets exist. And often it's simply that there's a lack of an incentive to collect the data. Or maybe actually, you know, those who are in a position to self-report they don't see the benefit of reporting. So that data ultimately will not exist. And in its place, there's a knowledge gap. And that's where Decoders comes in in the context of Amnesty's work. And so with Decoder Surveillance New York, what was the understanding of the wider power dynamics? And why was this project intervening to change that power dynamic? That's a great question. I, I should actually say, you know, Decode Surveillance NYC, it is building on past Dakota's project. So Dakota's was set up five years ago by my colleague in the evidence lab, Milena Marin. And actually past Dakota's projects very much kind of laid the groundwork for Dakota Surveillance NYC. 
So for example, early on, we had a project called Code 4 where we looked at satellite imagery analysis and over 28,000 people were involved in that. And some of those volunteers almost five years later returned to take part in Decode Surveillance NYC. So, so it's a project that has a kind of long history of using different data sources as they become available. And your question was about the power dynamics that we intervened in for Decode Surveillance NYC. So I think I should, I should say that Decode Surveillance NYC is part of a larger campaign called Ban the Scan. And Decode Surveillance is very much co-led by myself, but also Matt Mahmoudi, who is our researcher in artificial intelligence and, and human rights at Amnesty. And Matt set up Ban the Scan with around a dozen partner organizations in New York. And the goal of the campaign is to ban facial recognition in New York City and state. So Matt came to my team because there was a problem of missing data. We know that facial recognition violates our human rights in multiple ways. The freedom to assembly, expression, equality, and non-discrimination. And we also know that its application is increasing. We have good anecdotal evidence of how it affects minoritized communities. And there are academic studies that tell us that if you are black and brown, you are more likely to be misrecognized by the software and potentially falsely arrested. And without oversight, it enables law enforcement agencies with problematic records of racial discrimination to use the tool to use facial recognition software, perpetrating and entrenching these already targeted practices. So that was kind of what we knew, and that was the information that the coalition was working with. But what the NYPD, so New York Police Department, would not tell us is where and when they were using facial recognition technology. So we couldn't map uses of facial recognition technology, but we could map the camera systems that feed it. So our ultimate goal was to, to map these cameras and to understand New York residents and communities' possible exposure to facial recognition technology across the city. And, and I should say that, you know, this is it's not the first time that someone has tried to map cameras or an organization has tried to map cameras in New York. There were past projects and they used walking surveys. So what we really did was kind of take the idea of the walking survey, but bring it online using Google Street View. And in doing so, really widen access to whoever had an interest and in a computer and an internet connection to be able to contribute. So it was really exciting in that way. That's quite incredible that you could have coders and volunteers from all across the world with an internet connection and a computer. I think that's definitely changed the power dynamics at hand. Absolutely. What's really exciting about Amnesty Decoders and what Decode Surveillance NYC demonstrates really well is that we can take information that is perhaps already in the public domain, for example, Google Street View imagery, but through structuring that information and producing data, we can make it operational in advocacy and campaigning from the level of community groups right through to Amnesty International as an INGO. So in that sense, we're really leveraging crowdsourcing and crowdsolving to disrupt really asymmetrical power dynamics between the NYPD who were effectively refusing to release the information. I should say that we filed 
a freedom of information law request in September 2020. That was rejected. And one of the things that they said when they were rejecting our request was it would be tantamount to looking for a needle in a haystack to identify uses of facial recognition. So, you know, we had as a, you know, Amnesty is a large organization. So we had, you know, lawyers on our side. We were able to go in to make that strong request to appeal yeah. it. We were still rejected. So when you think of the power dynamics and the actors involved, there was Amnesty, there was the Scan Coalition, the NYPD refusing to release data. And then also we have another really powerful actor, right? We have Google and Google Street View imagery. And we kind of intervened in this situation and were able to mobilize thousands of people to get involved, to use Google Street View to generate that data that we needed to make the campaigning and advocacy possible. The technology available has allowed you to obtain critical data to spearhead advocacy work that would previously be very difficult to do. In adding on to that, what are the broader power dynamics at play in how you intervene in the system? To be honest, I love talking about power dynamics because I think it's really revealing in how we do our research. And perhaps first talk about how Amnesty Decoders leverages what we kind of call, quote unquote, the wisdom of the crowd. And, and to understand what I'm talking about here, you need to know that we enrolled 7,000 digital volunteers for this project over the course of a 10-week period. And these volunteers came from over 150 countries and took part remotely online. And what we asked them to do was to look at a Google Street View image and identify and then categorize the surveillance cameras they saw. And over 10 weeks, we actually succeeded in checking every intersection in New York City three times. So that's over 40,000 intersections. And what I mean by the, to return to the idea of the wisdom of the crowd is that we, when running decoders projects, always get our digital volunteers who we call decoders to check multiple times or analyze multiple times the yeah. same assignment. An assignment could be a Google Street View image, it could be a satellite image, it could be um, a document that you're analyzing the text in. And then for Decode Surveillance NYC, we have done a lot of data science, but we've actually arrived at a relatively simple solution, which is to take the median of those three counts. So from that, we were able to produce the data set that we have tested through far more complex methods to ensure that it is robust and reliable for our research. So, so what I'm talking about here, I guess, is how we take already public information and structure it to make yeah. it operational in advocacy and campaigning. And I think this is something that is common to most open source projects. But the exceptional thing about decoders is that we open up the investigation effectively to thousands of people. And we really also lower the bar to access to get involved. And our goal is always to kind of produce the, this counter narrative. And then I would say the code surveillance, when I talk about opening up the investigative space, it offers a different way for people to get involved in Amnesty's work and to contribute to real live research projects that, you know, we don't always know the outcome of. And I think this was particularly salient during the pandemic when perhaps people weren't able to go out to the streets to protest, although there are often many reasons why somebody couldn't do that anyway. So in that sense, decode surveillance 
is a way in which people can be in solidarity at a distance and also learn while they're doing the work a lot about what's at stake in the issue that we're investigating. And actually, we have, we have a forum that runs alongside the microtasking platform. And that's really an incredible space in which there's a lot of peer-to-peer support. And one of our forum moderators, I asked her recently to kind of document her experience. And she had this really beautiful way of putting it in that it is a space where we kind of build community and kindness. And that's the words of Sophia Kaferi. And our moderators too, our moderators are the forum moderators who are a core group of volunteers who are online to support that peer-to-peer learning and what happens in the forum. And they too came from different countries and were ranged from students to workers with really different abilities and experiences that they brought to the project. That's truly incredible, especially in terms of building solidarity online and the quote from the moderator about building community and kindness. I think that's that's a key takeaway, especially during a time when we've been very isolated. Absolutely. So how has design equity been factored into this project or achieved? Design equity for us is really a process and it's something that I would hope that we do better each project. I have a background in design actually. So I guess my approach to design equity is to design for marginalized groups or people or end users, especially when they are not the largest group. And that is often actually something that we don't think to do as designers. We we often target by default the largest group, but in doing so, we are preventing perhaps others from benefiting from the project in ways that they really should. And in terms of power dynamics, it means privileging the needs of others, perhaps of those minoritized groups or people, so that they benefit more or at least equally as other groups from the project. And I can give some specific examples of how we did that in Decode Surveillance NYC and in Amnesty Decoders in general. The Decode Surveillance NYC has happened in two phases. So we began with the crowdsourcing component and what we're working on right now, so the project is still very much live, is is an app, a web-based app that will demonstrate our research findings and also make that data explorable. So in the design of the crowdsourcing project, we privileged our international volunteers and their needs. And I can talk more about how we did that. And then in the design of the app that we're currently building, we privileged the needs of New Yorkers, those who we need to reach most in order for that ban against facial recognition technology to happen. Decode Surveillance presented actually for us a kind of unusual opportunity when I think about who we're working with, because also it's the second decoders only, which has been focused on a location in the global north. That made us reflect on how we were working with with communities who, unlike, for example, in past decoders, such as Strike Tracker that looked to track airstrikes over Raqqa in Syria, we could actually talk to people on the ground who we were in coalition with. In practice, this meant lots of user testing during the the design of the crowdsourcing. And also, crucially, at really key moments, getting feedback from our allies in the Bandscan coalition. And and that was done mostly um, by Matt, my uh, partner in this project, who met with that coalition weekly. Sophie, thank you so much for your answers. Could I also ask, what are some of the challenges the project has faced? There are also, though, I would like to mention real technical limitations to decoders. 
I've already spoken about the forum that poses challenges in how we can deliver the project in terms of languages. Moderation forum is really important. So even though in other parts of the campaign, we are able to translate materials into, for example, Arabic and Spanish for decode surveillance for the crowdsourcing, we delivered the project in English because we did not have the capacity to moderate the forum, you know, 24 hours a day with a cohort of volunteers in multiple languages. In that decision, we, we privileged safety and our concerns over moderation above actually being able to, to translate the project. And the one thing I would say too, and, and again, like thinking about the international cohort of volunteers who we involved, because we couldn't translate the crowdsourcing, we instead, as well as the user testing to make sure what we're designing was as intuitive as possible, we work really closely with a New York-based illustrator, Eliana Rogers, to produce pictograms that reinforced instructions and also acted as visual aids throughout the platform. And this benefited volunteers who were less fluent in English, but I would say like any good intervention that uh, centers access and inclusivity, ultimately it benefited everybody. And just out of curiosity, what was the largest percentage of non-English speakers? And um, where were they from or what language did they speak? It's a really interesting question to ask because the largest cohort of volunteers after the United States is Nigeria, or those volunteers were based in Nigeria. Wow. Our largest group came from Pakistan and the fourth from Bangladesh. And that actually reflects the kind of the legacy of past decoders because we ran uh, decoders that looked at oil spills in Nigeria. We also have ran, we ran a decoders in India looking at online abuse against women. It's really important when you think about running crowdsourcing projects that carry a risk because you need a certain number of people to engage for the project to be successful. That if you don't have that volunteer base, you factor in that risk. And where we're lucky with decoders is not only can we reach out to 10 million Amnesty supporters, should we choose to, we also have those volunteers that return to Dakota's projects. Then it's great to see that people are returning and seeing the benefit of them participating in these projects. Absolutely. When I say that we try to learn and improve each project, feedback from volunteers through the forum and also through evaluation processes, like the one that we're undertaking at the moment where we're interviewing volunteers, that's yeah. a really important part of decoders and is a way in which also, I guess you could say power dynamics is slightly disrupted in that our volunteers are also experts in how the project works and what works for them. So we very much need to be open to, to staying in touch with them and really learning from them throughout. And so my next question is, what is the impact of this project and what is the influence that it's having in New York, but also maybe perhaps on the volunteers as well? Yeah, this is kind of a tricky question to answer right now because we are, you know, we're still working on the projects. We haven't actually published the final data yet, but I think it's important to say that those 7,000 people who got involved during the crowdsourcing over that 10-week period, they were really exposed in depth to the issue of facial recognition technology. And in that sense, we really felt like New York, because of the unique opportunity it presented in that we had that up-to-date street view imagery so we could run a decoders, it became an entry point into the global campaign that we're running against facial recognition technology. 
So that for me is already a really concrete outcome. In June, while the project and the crowdsourcing was still running, we, we also decided to share our data when we hit the 50% point. That was really challenging because not only were we trying to maintain the crowdsourcing, we were also doing that early analysis of the data. But we chose to publish because it was important for the advocacy timeline. The New York mayoral elections were happening and so were other legislative processes. And, and I think we were successful. We got featured in over 200 media stories, including some quite prominent ones. And since then, we worked in September to, again, kind of share an early insight to some of our final findings that we're going to publish at the beginning of 2022. And we shared those with the New York Times, and we were able to give that counter narrative to counter surveillance. And our work was kind of quoted after a statement from the NYPD justifying their use of facial recognition technology. So in that sense, I would say that we're already succeeding in getting out there that counter narrative, but in a new way for the first time ever, you know, we've got this citywide data set of surveillance cameras. And now what we're doing to operationalize that further is we're working with an academic geographer and an open data organization in New York called Beta NYC to take our data and compare it to external existing data sets. For example, demographic data, protest data, stop and frisk locations. So that work's happening at the moment, that analysis, and that's what we're going to be demonstrating in the app. And we also have joined together with the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project and others to launch a new legal action against the New York Police Department for wrongfully rejecting our initial freedom of information law requests and for the department to release the details of its use of facial recognition technology to target Black Lives Matter protesters at the New York Supreme Court. And again, our data is being used in that legal action. That is fantastic to hear, especially because you're pressuring, as we said earlier, the systems that be and the powers that be with concrete data sets. Sophie, what are your main takeaways for other organizations based on this project and this experience? Decoders is a pretty unique project in that it's unique to Amnesty. And as I mentioned, the specific conditions that make it possible, for example, the access we have to the members of Amnesty and the volunteer base that we have built up over the last few years. One thing that I always get asked, though, when people hear that Decoders is five years old and also that, you know, we just ran an image analysis project is that, you know, surely Actually, people are not often so polite. It's more like, have you heard of machine learning? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have. And, you know, actually we used it in past decoders. We used the decoders data as machine learning training set for a previous project. In this project, we just didn't feel that was appropriate. So we're always asking, what is the right depth of tech? And particularly our data science team always asking that. But amazingly, what we found out is that we were proven right. Not only if we use machine learning, would we be funneling resources to a team to do that machine learning rather than opening up a project to 7,000 volunteers, we actually would likely have ended up with a less accurate and far smaller data set as there was a comparative study or an industry body actually did a write-up recently comparing our crowdsourcing 
with an academic study that used machine learning and found that even though we just looked at intersections as opposed to whole streets, we found more cameras than the algorithm did. There's lots of kind of obvious reasons why that could be true, not least because these tasks that we think as humans are relatively simple. For example, pointing out a camera in an image, given that that camera can be really small, it can look many different shapes and sizes and colors. Actually, some of the tasks that we, um, yeah, we think are simple, we still really would benefit from having humans do them. And of course, that's not even factory in the massive benefit of involving people in a campaign and leveraging that crowd support and raising awareness while we do the work. In addition to the benefits of human beings leading project work and being very actively involved and not solely relying on machine learning, could you also share with us some other lessons learned? I mentioned the data science work. Something that I learned when I got involved with the coders is that this is actually a massive part of the project and the data science team are really a core part of the project team. So just being aware of those really expert skill sets that you need to carry off the project. So it's not enough just to collect the data, of course, to do the advocacy and for the publishing of the data, not to be a threat to the integrity of Amnesty's work. We need to be sure of the caveats when we publish. So how trustworthy, how reliable is the data? And without knowing that, we can't really use it effectively. So, so just to be aware of the, the different skill sets that are required that range from video production for the tutorial, geospatial analysis for this project, and, and, and those expert skill sets that will also um, potentially cost to bring in, such as data science. There, there are other risks too that we included in our risk assessment before we decided to, to go ahead with the work. And one of them was Dakota's projects are always ambitious. And for this one, we wanted to cover the whole of New York City. And in fact, we kind of needed to do that, to do that comparative analysis at the end. That also meant that during the limited time frame that we were going to run the project, we had to hit a threshold of people getting involved. So as I mentioned before, being aware of the minimum number of people that you need to get involved for the project to work at all. If we had had only a few thousand, it could well have just not been enough. And then that work would have been wasted. But we, because of what are the reasons I've mentioned before, were able to hit that critical mass and actually fast surpassed it. So achieving the critical mass of volunteers was critical. Are there any additional comments on how volunteers have helped accomplish this project? I would say too that something that I that was new to me was working with a forum. Is this is something that I hadn't experienced before, but at least being on the side of moderation. And the forum plays a really important role in deco surveillance because not only does it build community and a sense of kindness and being part of something and connecting with other volunteers, it also actually really helps over the course of the project improve the quality of the data. As we have volunteers really become expert in the microtasking, they are able to offer that peer-to-peer support to other volunteers. And they also really scale up troubleshooting in a way that we simply could not as a small project team. So the forum is hugely important, but it also requires moderation. And I would say that 
perhaps expectations around moderation have changed since Amnesty Decoders was first launched five years ago. So it's an ongoing question for us, you know, how do we ensure that the forum is as safe a place online as possible? So just to be mindful of that when you're thinking about these large participatory projects and the resources available to you. Um, how did you select moderators for the forum? Through several channels, we reached out to Amnesty USA, who put out a call to their members. We also got in touch with volunteers from past Dakotas projects who we knew were really active. Yeah. We also had some students involved from one of our other projects that is called the Digital Verification Corps. So in that way, we actually had this really diverse, but really enthusiastic core group of volunteer moderators. So what I would add is that communicating instructions during microtasking is really challenging. So when I'm talking about expert skill sets involved, we also had a UX, so user experience designer, and we did a lot of user testing and that helped us really understand what people would not listen to because ultimately the quality of the data collected really rested on successfully onboarding this very diverse cohort of volunteers who many of which lack pre-existing knowledge of the subject. To do this, you know, we filmed a tutorial video, we worked with an illustrator, and we also produced a visual help guide. But it was really a kind of, it was really a process that took a lot of time. And is something that if we had not got right, again, if we had not kind of hit that threshold where enough people understood the instructions and agreed upon what the task was and how it should be executed, then we would not have had data that, even if it was a large enough data set, would have been reliable enough. So that's something to keep in mind from the technical side and the design of the research. Another thing that I would say that is a lesson learned that is one that we are continuing to learn is how to address the digital divide. As I mentioned before, there are ways in which we work to make the project platform accessible, but there were also barriers to participation. For example, internet connectivity. If you were not an English speaker, that was a barrier to participation. In terms of implementation, we worked so that the site did not require large bandwidth to load or the latest operating system. But I really think we could do a lot more to make microtasking work on mobiles. And this is particularly when we're talking about people getting involved perhaps on their way to work and they maybe on their lunch break have a, a window of time to participate. And this is one of the ways in which we communicate the project. You don't need to have hours available. 10 minutes is enough. But if we're really to follow through on that promise, the mobile version of the project needs to produce as reliable data as the desktop version. And what we found through Decode Surveillance is because people had small screens when they were using their mobiles, they simply were not seeing the same cameras that people were seeing on a desktop computer. So even though we made the design work well on a mobile, we weren't able really to follow through on the promise that that data was gonna be as usable as the data from desktops in the end. We actually decided that it was together, the data set was reliable enough, but that for me was a real kind of key lesson learned. And I think when we talk about, and we really sell a project as being inclusive and accessible, we really have to ask ourselves honestly, who is participating and how, and who are we not reaching and why? And that's yeah. something that we continue to ask and continue to, to, to learn from and improve as we get that feedback. And, and we try different projects. 
And it sounds like you are always up for the challenge to kind of improve the project interfaces with the coders to make sure that there's more people included and more volunteers are able to, to participate. And so what is next for the project? I think it's a really interesting time to talk about decoders because it's been running for five years. So we're actually undertaking an evaluation of the Annecy Decoders project at the moment. That said, even though it's five years old, there have been lots of innovations, including, you know, our use of new data sources as they've become available. For example, the street view imagery in Decode Surveillance NYC. What's next is kind of asking what should we be doing differently in terms of, you know, what made sense five years ago, but maybe doesn't now. One of the challenges, of course, is that it's pretty resource intensive to implement and there's also a long lead time. So I would love for a future iteration of decoders to be a more agile model, perhaps to have reusable blocks that will be available to researchers in order to shorten that lead time and also kind of ideally make the implementation less resource intensive yeah. um, and also for us to continue though to center those questions of access and inclusivity as we build a more flexible framework so to not generalize too much about the research needs and the needs of volunteers for different projects so, so that's one of the ways in which I think we can continue to make the project relevant to amnesty researchers and meet their changing needs I would also like to mention that, of course, Decode Surveillance NYC is not complete. So I wish I could tell you more, but I can't <laughs> about what we're doing. But yeah. we have this really exciting uh, app that we're going to share that is a, a web-based app that will be demonstrating the data and making it accessible in ways that will hopefully make it a tool that can be used by the partner organizations and the activists that we're working with to demonstrate the level of exposure of facial recognition across the city and its possible harms. And that I think is really important to mention because when we set up these crowdsourcing projects, we make a promise to volunteers really that what you are doing is contributing to something that has real relevance and we will use. We're in a situation with this project where we can make public the data. We can't always because of security threats, but we can make it public and we can share it back with everybody who contributed. And we're looking at ways to make it as relevant as possible to people outside New York, but also as useful as possible to residents of New York so that they can look at where they live and look at how facial recognition perhaps manifests in their community. And be in the know at the end of exactly. the day. Exactly. So thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's really a wonderful opportunity to talk about our work. And it's amazing work that is being done. And we're so excited to see how the web app comes out and to see where this project takes us in the next few years. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovative work and the Center's 2022 Civil Society Innovation and Digital Power Shift Report in the podcast description. We would like to thank the Center's innovation partner, TechSoup, for kindly supporting this report. We would also like to thank the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation and the Ford Foundation for their support in making this project happen. And thanks as always to the podcast producer, Julia Passos. We couldn't do these episodes without you.